We are in chapter 4 of 1 Peter. So I'm going to begin by reading verses 1 through 6. 1 Peter chapter 4. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judging the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. So in verse 1... Peter tells his readers to arm themselves. And he's using military language. He's using the kind of language you would use to a soldier who's going into battle. So what battle are these Christians fighting? And what is the weapon he's telling them to arm themselves with? About eight years ago, I was married here in Ridgecrest over at the Grab Street Chapel. And I can remember standing at the back of the chapel waiting for the service to begin. We had some time on our hands. I'm with my older brother, who is my best man. And he asked me if I'm hungry, and I said, sure. So he leaves, and he goes to McDonald's, comes back, and hands me a cheeseburger, which I start to eat not knowing that I'm sinning against decorum. Apparently, it's not appropriate to be standing at the back of the chapel 30 minutes before your wedding's going to start eating a cheeseburger. So somebody... I thought my wedding day was like my birthday, and I was just going to do whatever I wanted. Now I was wrong. It's not like your birthday. So somebody had to tap me on the shoulder and say, Sir, could you please finish your meal somewhere else out of sight? So I obey. But what shocked some people more than my apparent lack of class and common sense is the fact I was able to eat at all half an hour before I was going to be married. Because you'll talk to some grooms and they'll say, man, on the day of my wedding I was pacing back and forth and I was so nervous I thought I was going to throw up. How did you eat? Well, admittedly, I am very laid back by nature and always have been, probably to a fault. That's just the way I am. But more importantly, when I was young, some very godly men poured some very sound words into me that I took to heart, and they really served me well. They told me marriage is not a fairy tale. Now, I know if there are any teenage girls listening right now, you get very defensive when you hear someone say those words. I learned this through experience while teaching this to teenagers years ago. And they think, well, your marriage didn't turn out to be a fairy tale, but mine will. So you let me know how everything works out when you get married. But 
To say marriage is not a fairy tale is not to say marriage is bad. You see, people automatically jump to that conclusion, don't they? They think, well, if it's not a fairy tale, then it's a sham, and that's just not true. It's very rewarding if you do it right, and it is a great blessing if you do it right, but you need to understand what you're getting into, and that's what they helped me understand. They say it's about you learning to love another person. Now, those words might sound strange to some people, too. They think, well, wait a minute. You didn't love your fiancé before you married her? I loved her, but it's easy to love someone when you don't live with them. And you don't share everything with them and make your decisions with them, first of all. And secondly, I understood the type of love I was being called to. And Pastor Bill drew our attention to this a couple weeks ago or three weeks ago when he was preaching on marriage. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. C.S. Lewis in his book, The Four Loves, commented on this passage and he said, you know, no woman needs to begrudge the crown the head of the household wears because it's a crown of thorns. I knew I was being um, called to love my wife sacrificially. That's what that verse has to mean, right? It has to mean that we're called to love sacrificially. So I knew that that was the kind of love I was asked to grow into. It wouldn't come automatic. I would have to learn how to do it. And so when you go in with that mindset, it really prepares you. It lays the groundwork. You know, I was listening to a testimony just a month ago or a couple months ago from a couple named Jay and Catherine Wolf. Some of you might be familiar with their story. I think they've written a book about their journey and they might even be coming out with a movie. But they came from the deep south and they met in college. They fell in love. They got married and they decided for whatever reason to move to California and Los Angeles. And Jay is studying to be a lawyer. Catherine is doing some modeling. Um, not long after they're married to give birth to his son. And when he's six months old, Jay is about three weeks away from finishing his law degree. His wife suffers a severe brain stem stroke. They have to haul her to the hospital. And at first it looks like she's not even going to survive. But Jay is there, the church is there, they're praying over her, and miraculously, she comes through, but not without severe impairment to her body. Like, to this day, half of her face is paralyzed. And she still needs a wheelchair, although she has some mobility. I think she can walk around a little bit. But right after the accident, right after her stroke, she's completely immobilized. She can't even swallow and they embark on this really long rehabilitation process that's very taxing financially, emotionally, spiritually. And a lot of husbands would probably say, you know what? I didn't sign up for this. This is not what marriage is supposed to be like. He's still in his 20s, right? This is not the plan. Well, if you married tradition, if you used traditional 
wedding vows at your wedding. I know not all couples do. Some of them come up with their own vows. Gee golly, I think you're swell. If things go well, time will tell. We can be married for now. But if you use the traditional vows, what do these words mean? For better, for worse. In sickness and in health until death. Those are solemn words. And young people especially, they need to go into that situation with their eyes open. You can't just say, oh, well, they're just unlucky. People like Jay and Catherine Wolf, they're unlucky. That's not going to happen. You don't know that. And even if you don't go through the same trials they went through, you're going to go through tough times no matter what. So you need to be armed with the right way of thinking. And that's what Peter is saying to these Christians. You follow Christ with your eyes open. You need to be armed with the right mindset. In the book of Mark, chapter 4, there is a very famous parable of Jesus recorded, the parable of the sower. He talks about someone who goes out sowing seeds, and some of the seeds fall along the path. The birds snatch them up. Some of the seeds fall into what's called stony ground or bad soil. The plant springs up, but the sun scorches the plant and the plant withers away. Some of the seeds fall among thorns and thistles, and the thorns and thistles prevent the seed from yielding anything. And then some of the seed find good soil and a crop is yielded. And in Mark chapter 4, verse 14, Jesus explains what the parable means. The sower sows the word. And these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy, and they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. Now, what I want to focus on for the purposes of my message today is that second case. He talks about seed that's sown on this rocky soil. They hear the good news and they accept it with joy. And they think, yes, this is good. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. In Christ Jesus, they say, sign me up. I want free forgiveness. I want free eternal life. But when the going gets rough, what happens? They say, I didn't sign up for this. And they get offended and they fall away. And this, by the way, is why the prosperity gospel is so dangerous. This idea that if I become a follower of Jesus Christ, I'm signing up for a trouble-free life. And I've heard testimonies of Christians and that's, amazingly, that's what they thought. And I say amazingly because if you just read the New Testament, 
you know that's not the case. It's not just here in First Peter. It's all over the Bible. And yet they get it in their head that, oh, following Jesus, I'm not going to have any problems. It's a trouble-free life. And then they get offended. What's this suffering? Where did that come from? So we have to be armed with the right way of thinking. Peter says, whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. And I like what John Elliott says with respect to these words. I'm leaning fairly heavily on his commentary this morning. He's saying these words point to the disciplinary function of suffering in the life of a believer. God has a plan for us, and we talked about that plan last time I preached. His will is our sanctification. He wants us to become like Christ. He wants us to love God and love our neighbor. And we have passions, cravings, and desires that are not in harmony with God's plan. And so one of the instruments he uses, I'm not saying it's the only one, but one of the instruments God does use to bring us into check is suffering. And I like what A.W. Tozer had to say along these lines. I have often wished that there were some way to bring modern Christians into a deeper spiritual life painlessly by short, easy lessons, but such wishes are vain. No shortcuts exist. Now, we've been hammering on this theme now for several weeks, so I think you get the picture, or hopefully, our redemption will involve some degree of suffering. Peter says, be ready for it. Then in verse 3, be ready for the reaction. For the time that it's past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. One of the really remarkable elements of Jesus' ministry was His table fellowship with sinners. Jesus was a friend to people that other respectable people wanted nothing to do with. And that kind of puzzled people. They thought, well, Jesus, you're supposed to be a righteous guy. Why are you hanging out with these lowlifes? And He explained... People who are well don't need a physician. People who are sick need a physician. And he's defining his role. He's saying, I am a physician hanging out with people who need a doctor. Jesus did not get drunk with sinners. He did not commit lawless idolatry with sinners or engage in orgies with sinners. Because sometimes I think people use that element in Jesus' ministry to justify ungodly behavior, and that's not what Jesus was doing. He wasn't partying with them. He was ministering to them. And Peter here, he's drawing a very clear line. He's saying, here's the boundary. Some of you used to do this. You can do this no more. You've got to be on the right side of the line. Now, that doesn't mean, and I talked about this when I preached from Daniel 7, that we develop an us-versus-them attitude toward unbelievers because they are the mission field, right? So we want them to hear the gospel. We want them to come into the church. But we're not going to do that by parting with them. And it can make for some awkward conversations because what do you do when your friend calls you up on the phone and says, Hey... Where were you last night? 
Because like I said, you don't want to just say, well, I think you're going to hell. And I don't want to go with you. But even if you answer more graciously, all right, even if you say, you know what, I'm a, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ now, and I don't want to put myself in a situation where I'm going to be tempted. So we, we can hang out and do something else, but I'm not doing that with you. Even if you answer more graciously, it is very plausible that your friends are going to feel betrayed. They're going to feel abandoned, and they will lash out, and that's what's happened here. Verse 4, with respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. They insult you. You know, one of the things I love about mothers is their fierce family patriotism. It's really remarkable to hold. You know, when I was young, uh, I was scared to tell my mom some of the things. You know, if I got picked on school, I didn't know whether I wanted to tell my mom or not because she would go ballistic. And I mean, you find this, you see this, it's really, it's really um, interesting, it's remarkable. Like these, these meek, mild, submissive women, the second you insult their children, you find a bear in lamb's clothing. And if you insult your, their grandchildren, you're even more foolish. And, and I love that about mothers. I mean, it's that they're the special trustees, you know, of their family's interest, and they are guarding their loved ones. So why doesn't God do anything about this? You've got these Christians that are a minority in Asia Minor. They're being maligned and insulted. Why doesn't God step in and do something? Why does He let them get away with it? Now, I alluded to one of the reasons already, because He wants them to repent. But listen to what Peter has to say in verse 5. But they will give account to Him who is ready to judge the living and dead. They will get away with nothing. You know, these words, judge the living and the dead, were very important in the early church. So important, they eventually made their way into what is known as the Apostles' Creed. And if you're not familiar with that, you can think of it as like a list of foundational Christian beliefs because it's difficult to memorize the entire New Testament. It's nice to have just a simple creed that, hey, this is what we believe. And some of the words, I'm not going to recite the whole thing, are, on the third day he rose again from the dead, he ascended into heaven and sits on the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there, he will return to judge the living and the dead. In other words, God is going to reconcile all things in His Son, and the universe is going to be set to rights for everyone. So Peter is encouraging them, and then in verse 6, he writes, For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in flesh the way people are, they might live in the Spirit the way God does. Now this verse is notoriously difficult. And if you start reading commentaries on 1 Peter, you'll find all manner of interpretations of verse 6. But again, I think John Eliot helped me to weed out a couple of interpretations that really don't hold water. Sometimes the dead in verse 6, for example, have been identified with the spirits in prison from chapter 3, verse 19. This is not a plausible interpretation of this passage. 
First of all, the language is different. Spirit, the imprisoned spirit are not referring to human beings. They are different. But the dead, in verse 6, is referring to human beings. So that is not a good connection. There's not good evidence for that. Now, what some people also do is will say what, what Peter is doing in verse 6 is he's talking about the spiritually dead. Now, admittedly, the Bible does talk about spiritual death. And it is distinct from physical death. This is true. When Paul says you were dead in your transgressions, he's not talking about physical death. But that's not what Peter is talking about here. If you look at verse 5, he's very clearly talking about physical life and physical death. And also look at the similarity between verse 6 and verse 18 in chapter 3. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Peter is talking about physical death. Those within the Petrine communities that heard the gospel and responded to it, but have since died. The gospel was preached, past tense, to those who are dead. And they were judged in the flesh, meaning, from the world's perspective, they died a shameful, disgraced death of a minority Christian group. And Peter's saying, don't buy into that. They were judged in the flesh the way people are, but they are going to live in the Spirit the way God does. They are not going to lose out on their reward. Neither will you count it as a small thing if the world condemns you. That's what he's talking about in verse 6. Now, as I close, like I've mentioned, you know, when we're, we're reading First uh, Peter... And we find this very pronounced emphasis on suffering. Uh, we could draw the wrong conclusion that suffering is like the goal of the Christian life. That suffering is the thing we're supposed to be aiming for or even praying for. And I want to tell you that's not the goal. Peter tells us the goal in verse 2 of chapter 4. The goal is the will of God. And neither should we think that becoming a Christian means forfeiting the good life and being miserable now so that we can be eternally blessed later. I want to tell you, for years I lived in... uh, You know, I was never wild, but I was living in separation and alienation from God. And I didn't have a, a real direction. I didn't have real purpose. And when I came to know who God is, I put my faith in Jesus, the quality of my life changed for the better exponentially, became exponentially better. Now, you might think, well, you're sneaking the prosperity gospel back in on us. No, I'm not saying my circumstances changed. They didn't. My circumstances did not change. What changed was me. All right? He breathed new life into me and I had something I did not have. I had hope. Um, When Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weak and weary, and I will give you rest, He spoke the truth. When He said, take my yoke, 
Because my yoke is easy and my burden is life. He spoke the truth. And Jesus wasn't just blowing sunshine at His disciples. He spoke those words knowing He was going to Jerusalem. Knowing He was going to Gethsemane. Knowing He was going to Calvary to die for the sins of the world. He said, my yoke is easy. Take His yoke upon you. It is the best, most fulfilling life you can possibly have in the here and now. Is by following Jesus Christ, but it's not trouble free. And so, as one wise man once said, the Son of Man did not suffer and die so that we might not suffer, but so that our suffering would be like His. Let's pray. Holy Father in heaven, what a beautiful day you've given us today. And um, we thank you for this opportunity to read from your inspired word, to be nourished from the words of your apostle. And we pray for the hearts and minds of our church here that we would receive this good seed and that you would bless this seed, Lord, that you would produce a crop for the glory of your name, here in Ridgecrest and to the ends of the earth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.